Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hello, and welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy McMurtry. This show was produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders both past and present of these lands, as well as those you are hearing us from today. On today's Women on the Line, we'll be speaking with Jessica Gerard about her research looking at the precarity for street vendors selling The Big Issue magazine. The Big Issue is a not-for-profit social enterprise which offers employment opportunities to people experiencing homelessness and other disadvantage surrounding employment. Jessica Gerard is Senior Lecturer in Education, Equity and Politics at the University of Melbourne. In 2012 to 2015, she was awarded the McKenzie Postdoctoral Research Fellowship at the University of Melbourne. Within this fellowship, Jessica led a three-year interdisciplinary study on marginalised experiences of work and learning, focusing on the homeless and unemployed women and men who sell homeless street press, such as The Big Issue. Her most recent book presents the main findings of this research, Precarious Enterprise on the Margins, Work, Poverty and Homelessness in the City. We'll be speaking with Jessica today about her research. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what the big issue is and the purpose behind it and um, some of their intentions. Sure. So what's really interesting about the big issue is that it actually arose from a much longer history of homeless street press. So in the US... Uh, Homeless Street Press was established in the 80s and 90s as a response, obviously, to homelessness, um, but were uh, coming out of organisations that were primarily activist organisations, so that they were quite radical newspaper-like kind of uh, publications, so not glossy magazines like The Big Issue, and they would be sold by homeless people as a form of getting legitimate money. So in cities where begging or panhandling, as it's known in the US, is illegal. Um, Selling or um, getting a donation for a publication is legal, and so they would use this as a means to get legitimate income, but also to spread critical analysis around policing, around public policy, around poverty, law changes, around um, begging or loitering, all the things that would affect poor people and homeless people in the cities. So Gordon Roddick, who's the husband of Anita Roddick, the late Anita Roddick, who was the founder of The Body Shop, went to the New York and found these magazines or newspapers, I should say, on the street and thought, oh, this is a really interesting idea. And he was a business-minded man. Um, and he went back to the London, which is where he's from, and thought, okay, I'm going to use this as a basis to start a new form of homeless street press um, being the big issue. This is the early 1990s. And he was interested in coming up with a market-based model. So unlike these kind of radical activist US-based newspapers, he wanted to think about this as a business enterprise that would, um, to some extent, solve the issue of unemployment for people who were homeless. So the idea behind it at the time was that it would create jobs where there aren't jobs, that it would be highly flexible so that people could dip in and dip out as they needed to, um, 
again, provide a legitimate form of income. Begging in London was and is illegal, as it is in Melbourne um, and other places in um, across the globe and nationally. It's now a global um, enterprise, and it is what I would consider to be the first social enterprise. So social enterprise has become a very popular thing in Australian public policy and um, in other nations as well. And it is this idea of bringing business-based ideas or market-based ideas into um, what I'm going to broadly speak about as being social problems, but it can be anything from environmental problems to things around poverty or other other issues that people want to address. Um, and the big issue did this through creating this magazine that would be sold by homeless men and women on the street. It's a a very loose organisation in terms of the employment relations. So vendors have to buy the magazine. They buy it for half the price. I think it's gone up to gone up since I did the research, but at the research it was um, seven dollars. So it was they they bought it for three dollars fifty and then sold on for three dollars fifty. So they got half the profit for every sale that they sold. Can you just give us a bit of a brief explanation of how you did your research? Like, how did you come to even be interested I guess in this idea and yeah like with about the methodology and the purpose behind Mm. it. So I actually dreamed up this research project when I was finishing a completely different research project. Um, I was doing my PhD over in uh, the University of Cambridge in the UK which is a very um, elite uh, institution and at the time I was doing research on community-based education projects Um, But I was really struck in the city of Cambridge with the disparities between the wealth of the colleges and the university itself and the poverty on the streets. And there were lots of big issue vendors around. And it got me really thinking about uh, what was happening there and and what it must be like for these big issue vendors on a day-to-day basis to be, you know, really trying to get people to sell these magazines and all of these relatively privileged students walking by. I was kind of interested about that dynamic. So when I finished, my PhD was done and dusted on that different topic and I came back to Australia, I was thinking about what next and I I did a quick search. I was really surprised to see that there'd been virtually no research on the big issue. What was there was quite limited and um, uh, didn't really get, in my opinion, kind of into the real depths of the experience of the vendors. So what I wanted to do and what I ended up doing was a very close ethnographic study of what it was like to be a big issue vendor. Now, I'm, I wasn't homeless at the time and so I'm, and I haven't been a vendor, so I, I wanted to get as close as I could to that experience. So that just meant spending a lot of time with vendors. Over three years I did the study and for about 18 months of that three years I spent in Melbourne hanging out with um, vendors, interviewing them, repeat interviews. Uh, we did a photography project where vendors took photos of a typical day's work and then we discussed it. So I just tried all these different strategies of getting to know their experience. Methodologically, I was very aware that I was researching a community who's very marginalised um, and who are often over-researched. And I, and I mean that in all sorts of different ways, not only is this community often asked to be subjects of research, but also they're often asked to talk about their lives and to disclose about their lives for access to basic services, to access um, social security and welfare, but also access to housing, healthcare, all of those sorts of things require a certain disclosing of what is often a past trauma, you know, in terms of um, their lives before 
and becoming homeless. So I was very aware that I didn't want to replicate those sorts of power dynamics. And so I made this a study of working lives. So I had a, um, a general rule in, in my research that I only asked them questions that I would be prepared to answer myself and that I really focused on their working lives. So um, I didn't, you know, ask to go and see their homes or, you know, ask, um, you know, about their private lives. I was really interested in their experience as big issue vendors. Women on the line. Can you tell us more about some of the stories that you've heard from people about their work and lives? Well, unsurprisingly, it's a very diverse experience and diverse cohort. I think people have um, a range of different stories for why they're there selling um, the big issue and a range of different experiences. And obviously my research is just one dip in the ocean of experiences around the big issue and I'm sure that there are many people with um, other other stories to be told. But on the whole, most of um, the vendors that I spoke to found um, a great deal of dignity from being able to say um, that they were working because we live in a world in which people who are not working are often um, meant to uh, made to feel quite shameful um, around that. So um, that was one thing that people really identified with. And the other heart, the kind of other kind of side to that, however, is that this form of work uh, is has its toll. So this is a very public form of work. People are on the city streets. They're allocated pitches by the big issue organisation, so the spot on the sidewalk, if you like. And, you know, they, they have to kind of stand there, try and create a, um, a welcoming disposition that might encourage customers to come and buy a magazine, rain, hail or shine, and do this for as long as they need to do it until they have enough money to go home. And as I said before, it's not like they're getting paid by the hour or, or have sick pay or holiday pay. So, um, you know, it's really um, a very precarious form of income. So this meant that for many vendors, they had to think deeply about the sort of performance they were putting on. So I might start by giving you, telling you a story about Andrew, and I'll, I'll preface by saying that all the names that I use here are pseudonyms. I'm not um, using the real names um, to keep their anonymity. So Andrew... Um, was one of the most successful vendors that I came across. He's a kind of a lively seller, you know, very successful at um, capturing people's attention as they go by and um, engaging with them, telling stories, you know, um, commenting on how people are looking so good and, you know, trying to get smiles, doing all of these really active, um, very tiring at the end of a shift um, strategies to get sales. And he and I were sitting down over coffee looking at his photographs that he had taken of a day's work and we came to a photo that was, in my opinion, it was just kind of this dark, nondescript photo. I couldn't even really tell what it was and in my mind I was thinking, oh, it's probably a mistake, you know, he's probably just taken a photo of something and we'll pass on. Um, and so I, I pull out this photo and he's like, oh, that's my Superman a doorway. I was like, what, what do you mean, your Superman doorway? And he said, oh, well, that's where I go from being normal Andrew to being super big issue man Andrew. And he describes this process of going from his, he lives in um, social housing, of, move, of, of leaving for the day after he's woken up for breakfast and 
he doesn't want anyone around him to know that he's a big issue vendor, any of his neighbours, so he puts his um, all of his gear in a bag and he leaves in his um, civvy clothes, as he calls it. Um, and then this doorway in the city is the place where he transforms from being normal Andrew to being super big issue man Andrew and he um, puts on his big issue vest and pulls out his um, big issue bag and his hat so he makes himself more visible. Um, and he jokes about how it's usually stinks of urine and, you know, vomit from the drunk people the night before, you know, but this is his kind of a doorway of transition in the city. And um, once he becomes Big Issue Man, he literally changes his whole persona. He becomes the kind of flamboyant um, entertainer that I described before and uh, is very conscious that people will recognise him, that um, even when he's walking to and around the city, not even on his pitch, that uh, potential customers or any person walking past him could be a potential customer. So he's on show, he's kind of almost branded for the day. So when I ask him, you know, what happens at the end of the day, so okay, you transition into Big Issue Man at the beginning of the day, what happens when you take off all of your um, jacket? And he... he um, he became quite resigned at that point in the interview and, and said that it was very financially dependent. It really depended on how successful a day that was because um, at the end of a shift it, he would work out what kind of dinner he was going to have that night, what sort of money he would have for the rest of the week and that evening, uh, whether he could socialise with his friends or not. Um, and he also described that his personality changed, that he kind of allowed himself to be a bit more grumpy and sad at times, um, whereas being super big issue man, he had to be this very happy, always um, seeming to be on top of life. Um, and so this this interaction between customer and seller really intrigued me and, and it repeated again and again in all of the interviews that I did with the vendors where the requirement to be happy and on show and um, demonstrating themselves as as being worthy of customers' clientele took its toll on their personal lives. And right around Australia, you've been listening to Women on the Line. We've just been in conversation with Jessica Gerard, speaking on her research surrounding precarity for street vendors selling the big issue street press. So another story is that of um, Gabby, who um, when I first met had only been selling the big issue for uh, only a few months and was really struggling. She found it very difficult to do, could, um, but she would you know, pick herself up and she would stand on her pitch and just breathe and think to herself, perseverance, 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 and that she would just stand there and stand there and stand there. And the feelings of customers coming and buying the magazine would pepper up and make her feel good and she would kind of get into the um, throw of things. But she also suffered from um, uh, seizures and she was quite conscious of this and she realised that this could um, be off-putting for people who walked past and she wanted people to buy the magazine and not be afraid of her. So she turned the seizures into what she called her chicken dance. And so she described, you know, when she would have these seizures that she would kind of kind of make a joke at her own expense and do that out loud so that she could um, try and encourage people not to be 
concerned or afraid of, of, of her so that they could still approach her. And it's these kind of stories that really kept with me and has, you know, I still think about when I think about um, these vendors and how it is that they have to craft their presentation um, in their workplace, so a very public workplace that has really no boundaries, that you kind of issues of safety arose again and again as well. And that the private lives of these vendors is both constantly on show because everyone knows that they're homeless or they're disadvantaged or unemployed in some way. So there's a sense of kind of already knowing something about you um, in that form of work. And then at other times trying to protect themselves, um, trying to keep private some things, or in Gabby's case, having to try and work out a way to deal with something that was a private matter for her, but that was um, invariably public and invariably a part of her work practice. I think, you know, as you talk, there's there's part of me that thinks like some of these stories, uh, and, you know, uh, particularly with the first story told of Andrew. Andrea, is a real exacerbated sense of what we all do when we go to work every day. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. There's something really, um, I mean, but, you know, much more exacerbated. And, you know, obviously for him it has much more dire consequences. We get to go home and, you know, have our heating and, you know, right. a lot of us, you know, that kind of thing. But I think that often people think about the big issue as being a really empowering kind of thing. And I think some people don't even think about it as work. You know, like I, I kind of imagine that people think, oh, I'm giving these people money and they, they're, they're working. But that, that disconnection from the kind of work that I do as a, you know, everyday citizen, I'm kind of using that air quotes here to talk about the idea of like homeless labor and working labour from somebody who's... Exactly. And that was one of the things that I wanted to get at with this research project was, um, I mean, it is a, a form of work and so what kind of work is it, you know? So, and um, absolutely one of the things that came through in the research is that there is many continuities in terms of work practices across the board here in terms of other forms of precarious labour. Um, and... Even little things around um, one of the things that vendors really valued about the experience was the sense of routine that it gave. And I know that um, that's often what people talk about with kind of work in general is that it, it kind of marks your week, it marks your day for good or bad. <laughs> they are definitely things that we all experience. And so one of the things I've been thinking about with the big issue work is how it's an extension of broader social conditions of work and labour in our current society, but with, as you say, the layered complexity of um, poverty and of disadvantage and also of this um, kind of very public nature of the work and what I've been thinking about as affective labour and what I mean by that is the kind of labour in which you need to valorise or make value out of your very sensibility. So the kind of things that I was talking about with Andrew and Gabby before about having to kind of put on a show and be welcoming and happy and and there are other workers who have that those kind of conditions. So if you think about people in hospitality and bars, for instance, or in some customer service roles or um, air stewards, you know, there's a, there's a range of different jobs where there's an affective quality to what we do where we have to kind of paint the smile on our face um, is, a, is a performative aspect of the work. And I think um, for big issue vendors, what's happening is that this is happening within the context of poverty and precarity. So you talked about 
the ways in which people experience, you know, both positive and negative, like lots of people do in relation to work. But I'm interested more in the kind of model that, you know, the big issue use and the ways in which people perceive that kind of model and that kind of work as being beneficial. So what do you see as the kind of benefits and the problems of the, of the model of the big issue? So one of the things that the big issue provides is, and I think that this is a true benefit, if you like, is the possibility to work where there is a complete lack of opportunity. And one of the key aspects for that is the fact that it's flexible and that people aren't necessarily stuck to an employer or to set hours. Um, and many vendors talked about the impossibility of, of that kind of form of employment. And that was in part due to managing a whole range of complex health issues or caring responsibilities or other um, things happening in their life that meant that that kind of employment wasn't possible. Look, I think that that's, that's clearly um, providing something in that space. But I, I think that we need to think about what the alternatives might be. And I don't think it's a, I, I think pitching it as the kind of big issue providing employment versus uh, what we currently have in terms of what's provided for unemployment. I'm currently doing some research with some older unemployed uh, men and women and the kind of um, uh, forced volunteering work that happens in that space. I mean, those things aren't solutions to unemployment. So we need to be thinking about um, this model in the context of the broader issues surrounding poverty and unemployment in society. Um, and I think that there are some real issues around the fact that for the vast majority of vendors I spoke to, um, their precarious poverty remained. So this was not an exit out of poverty. It was um, their form of work and it was going to be their form of work until they could no longer do it. And I think that's very concerning. I think that if we're socially um, heralding a solution to poverty and unemployment that doesn't actually address precarity and poverty, then we're in trouble. An interesting aside around this is that in London, when I was conducting the research around the big issue here, and I'll, I'll be careful to say that this is a rule that, as far as I know, isn't in Melbourne, but when I was in London, they had just instituted a new rule for vendors of the big issue where they had to sell 35 magazines a week in order to maintain a pitch. So as I described before, the pitch is where they get to stand um, to sell the magazine. So this meant that very low selling vendors, so vendors who really struggled to, to move magazines, were at risk of not even having the security of a pitch and having to lose um, the little kind of level of routine and security in the work that they had. Um, and in my mind, this kind of really um, highlights the tension between a market response to poverty, a kind of business model response to poverty and the realities of poverty. Um, because the big issue staff who I spoke to defended this decision on the basis that they're a business, that they need to they need to move the stock, they need sellers to be selling the magazine. And they were concerned that some sellers were using the magazine as a vehicle for begging, so accepting donations from people walking past without actually giving them the magazine and so this was a means for them to try and like get the magazine out the door but what this meant is that many vendors and there are many uh, some many vendors I spoke to struggled to sell for a day and they would be out there for six seven eight hours 
So what meant for those vendors um, with this new rule was another layer, I think, of um, exploitation in terms of their work relations. So um, you've talked a little bit about, I guess, the findings of, of your research and what it offers us, but is there, are there other things that you can speak to about what your research offers us? One of the main things that I wanted to understand with this research was what kind of experience vendors actually have of this work and how they find it impacting on their lives. And I mentioned this earlier, but I think one of the things that has remained with me and I think is one of the really important findings of this study is this dynamic between the desire to be socially mobile and to move on from poverty and desire not just on the vendor's part but also on kind of I think society's expectations and certainly policy's expectations is that people who are unemployed will move out of unemployment. Um, we know that, that there is um, extensive work research to show that there is an entrenched long-term unemployed um, cohort in Australia and so they feel this desire and uh, you know to move out of their poverty obviously but on the other hand have this day-to-day -day lived experience of being stuck of of living in that poverty and this tension caused quite a lot of trauma itself in in the vendors that I spoke to because they were aware that there was an expectation that they were going to move on they had ready answers for people who ask them oh what, what will you do after you you know where do you want to go after becoming a big issue vendor they all kind of had these hopeful pathways but the reality of that was very different for them and now that's not to say that not everyone of course there's many people who would um, use the big issue as a stepping stone and move on to other things but I the pattern that I was seeing in the research was that that wasn't the case and I think that that's something that um, in terms of bringing a broader perspective to this issue is really important and needs to be addressed um, politically and through public policy. You've been listening to Jessica Gerard speaking on homelessness, poverty and precarity for street vendors selling the big issue. Moon on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to womenonthelion at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Women on the Line page and follow the links to this week's show. The theme song for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Amy McMurtry. Thanks for tuning into the show. Hold up. 